Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week are Deputy Editor of Spike, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the show, unrepresentative democracy, Facebook's ban on white nationalism and Joe Biden's Me Too moment. The referendum is clear and has to be accepted and we can't have a rerun of the question that was put to the country. Whatever the British people decide, we work together to make that happen. I don't think it would be right for Parliament to try and unravel the decision that the public have made. The sole duty of every member of Parliament is to do what he or she thinks is right. The EU referendum was an exercise in direct democracy. The public gave a clear mandate to our politicians to take Britain out of the European Union. Our representatives in Parliament, on the other hand, have spent the past three years trying to decide how best to frustrate, water down or prevent Brexit. So, Tom, is this an inevitable problem with mixing direct democracy with representative democracy, as some argue? Well, I think that's the question, really. And what I wanted to do, I wrote about this on Spike this week. And because so much is going on, we should also note that we're recording this unusually early on Wednesday morning this week. Theresa May has just announced this potential kind of devil's bargain with Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. More indicative votes might be on the way. Who knows? But I just wanted with this piece to take a little bit of a step back and look at some of the arguments that are being made as to why this process has become so torturous. I think the reason is quite simple. You have a political class that is didn't want Brexit in the first place, is doing everything they can to stop it, but also so incredibly inept and uncoordinated that they're making a complete hash of it. You know, sometimes the simplest explanation is the best one. But this argument has developed. We heard it in the aftermath of the referendum and we're hearing it again now, which is effectively that this is the inevitable consequence of mixing direct democracy with our representative democracy. It's a bit of a strange argument, I think, effectively saying that the inability of the political class to implement the referendum result is down to the fact that they had the referendum in the first place. And it's a little bit like saying the reason you didn't show up to your job on Monday is because you accepted the job offer. Like, it doesn't really add up. But nevertheless, I think it's worth interrogating because it does get to grips with this... um, debate that's been raging for centuries really about what representative democracy is and what it's supposed to mean and we could get into some of the weeds of that which I think is definitely interesting but I ultimately think that that debate is actually is completely irrelevant even if you have a view of representative democracy that many MPs seem to have which is that MPs are there to use judgment and principle that they shouldn't always just give in to what people say that they are elected to represent people on certain pledges but at the same time they have room to exercise judgment that to me is entirely consistent with them implementing the referendum result they Mm. voted for this referendum in the first place they told voters and even some of the most anti-brexit people now there's clips of them doing this that their vote would be implemented Um, many of them stood on manifestos that said they would implement this result many of them gave personal pledges in personal campaign literature (laughs) that they would uphold this referendum result so I think that we whilst I'm interested to get into this discussion about representative democracy, direct democracy, what is the responsibility of an MP? In a way, I think it's a bit of a sideshow because when people, what people are doing when they're trying to defend these MPs is not defend representative democracy, it's to defend kind of political fraud in a sense. And I think in a way, this discussion becomes a little bit of a distraction. On the one hand, it's, I think the discussion has been quite technical. So um, lots of people are suggesting that we need to completely change the way that our representative democracy works are talking about scrapping first past the post system going with proportional representation having citizens assemblies some people have said having more referendums i think it's time to look at something new but 
it can't just be a technical discussion because it doesn't matter how you vote in politicians. If you vote in politicians who, as Tom says, simply do not want to do what they've been elected to do, which Mm. is the case with Brexit, it is a political question, not a technical question. They don't want to do it, no matter how they're trying to manoeuvre it. Well, then nothing will necessarily change. I I was thinking about how both sides of the house are managing to manoeuvre around stopping Brexit. And I was thinking about the question of no deal. So they voted down no deal in Parliament and now potentially later on this week they're going to vote to make it illegal for Theresa May to allow a no deal to happen. If MPs genuinely believed that no deal was uh, that catastrophic, right, they would just revoke Article 15. Because mm. they, that, that's the simple way of doing it. What they're suggesting now is potentially the confirmatory referendum, a second referendum or some other matter, which means that you, when you interrogate the way that they are manoeuvring, it very quickly becomes clear that it isn't about them doing what's for the you know greater good of the people. It isn't about them following their conscience. It's just simply about the fact that they don't like Brexit. It's actually very flimsy. And so in that way, when you're talking about the kind of how to make politics better in the future and what kind of democracy you want to see, well, it doesn't matter what you change if you continue to elect politicians who do not believe in democracy and only want to do things that they like. Well, the, the second referendum discussion is fascinating in that, in that regard. And, and, you know, as you said, they've they've changed the language to now call it a confirmatory vote, mm. you know, between remaining in the EU via actual remain and remaining in the EU via Theresa May's deal. And so you, on, on the one hand, you have all these uh, MPs saying that you um, elect us to exercise our judgment. But then on the other hand, they even want to outsource the betrayal of Brexit back to the public mm. and are un- unwilling to actually make clear their, <laughs> their betrayal. Yeah, their judgment has been that the Theresa May's deal is bad three times now, potentially a fourth time. By what logic do they then put that to a confirmatory? I mean, they don't believe that the deal is worth voting for. So why would they then put it out to the people to vote for? It's completely disingenuous. One of the things I think is quite interesting about all of this is that on the one hand, I'm really glad this has come to the fore because we've written about this on Spike many times is that the idea of what an MP is for is really something that is kind of the unfinished business of the English Civil War. You know, it Mm. comes down to that internal battle within the pro-parliamentary side between the more radical factions, people like the Levellers, and between Cromwell's side who wanted a far more limited franchise, who wanted democracy to be far less meaningful for less people to participate in it. And of course, the Levellers wanting something that involved more people and that was more direct. And I'm glad that it's coming to the front. But there's, I think we also need to recognise there's a lot of disingenuousness in the way in which people are trying to pose their defence of representative democracy. This Mm. is not a defence of, you know, philosopher king representatives (laughs) who will be have the trust of the public, but then ultimately act out their wishes. This is about defending the right of people to say one thing, to do another, to be elected on one party, then join another party without actually sparking a by-election. It's ridiculous, even on its own terms. And I think the thing that it comes down to is because we have a representative system, because it has many flaws, because in many ways it is indirect and there's few ways in which the public can particularly recall MPs if they're doing things that they don't wish, etc, etc, etc. People don't have a lot of power. So what becomes really important is trust. And in this whole process, trust is the one thing that these people are completely destroying, particularly when they're making incredibly disingenuous arguments about why what they're doing is actually, you know, in support of democracy when it quite clearly isn't. You've had some remarkable examples of that breakdown in trust uh, just on an individual basis and MPs. I mean, Dominic Grieve, 
I can't believe what's happening with him. He had a vote of no confidence put forward by his local conservative association because he is rabidly Remain mm. and they presumably are not. Even lots of Remainers that I talk to say that Dominic Grieve goes pretty far in his anti-Brexit rhetoric. And what happens, you know, this perfectly democratic process, a vote of no confidence, something that's meant to be there to allow voters and constituents to hold their MPs to account. MPs on both sides of the parties come out and say, this is a shame. Keir Starmer says, what the sad demise of politics. You think, what? A normal democratic process? Are you gods now? Are we unable to touch you? I mean, it's crazy. For them to think, to posture in Parliament with that kind of arrogance that they cannot be touched at the same time as completely going against public trust you think where is this going to go it's not going to go down a particularly positive route because either people are going to completely switch off from politics or mps are going to pay really badly that arrogance um, that you allude to is is completely unfounded i mean if you look at the 650 no marks currently sitting in parliament i don't know how anyone could possibly describe them as philosopher kings or how anyone could seriously mount a defense of you know burkean representation when you look at the caliber of the individuals in mm-hmm. there i'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to spiked I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spike to some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Facebook has announced that its platform will ban praise, support, and representation of white nationalism and separatism. Facebook was under intense pressure to act after the New Zealand terror attacks, where the killer live-streamed his murders on the channel. Mark Zuckerberg has also published an open letter calling for new laws and government regulation of social media. So Tom, what's going on here? So this change in policy from Facebook seems to shift on a kind of distinction that they had previously drawn um, from banning white supremacy, which they had previously done, to not banning white nationalism and white separatism. They had mm. this argument that these two things were distinct um, and that you know banning white nationalism, for instance, could get bound up with banning just American patriotism or Basque separatism or whatever it was. Um, and now there has been a, there's been a lot of pressure on them for months and months and months from various supposedly civil rights groups um, on the idea that they should you know erode this distinction. It's ultimately meaningless. In many respects, I'd argue that um, this is all uh, is all a bit like dancing on the head of a pin. I don't think you can make a meaningful distinction, particularly between white supremacy, white nationalism, etc. Mm. The core of it is racism, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's the idea that people can't live together, and the implicit thing, even of a kind of white separatist outlook, is that white people are superior. I mean, all of that is that odious, ugly, racialized ideology, and I think the distinctions they've been trying to make so far have been incredibly. Um, ridiculous but again this comes down to the point of why they shouldn't be having to make these distinctions in the first place why it's in many respects very dangerous for a social media company which has in some respects become the new public square insofar as how politics is done different political groups having discussion threads and having facebook pages and all the rest of it that they are basically empowered under all of this moral pressure put on them by activists and government and everyone else um, to decide what is and isn't acceptable. And I think, if anything, that ludicrous distinction that they were maintaining 
entertaining so far. And the fact that so many people were bothered by it is more proof as to why it should be down to users to make up their own minds, what mm. they access, what they think, what they say, rather than it, for it to be, you know, Facebook's team of lawyers to come up with hard and fast rules about what isn't isn't acceptable. And to me, it just proves that that's an unsustainable thing to do in the first place. Ella? Well, in the Washington Post article that Zuckerberg wrote kind of declaring his new plans or what he wanted to have happen one of the things that frightened me frankly is was his call for an active a more active role for governments and regulators and he kind of breaks it down into saying they need to police harmful content election integrity privacy and data portability and (laughs) the kind of things that he's talking about is you know bringing uh bringing policies on harmful content into line with government regulation on hate speech law but also he wants to set up an independent body i mean essentially it's trusting not only trusting the big business of facebook but trusting governments to implement the kind of regulations that users would come into contact with on facebook or other platforms uh does does he mean all governments i mean uh, does he mean Erdogan in Turkey? Mm. Do, I mean, there are so many governments, uh, even our own, Theresa May's snooper charter kind of policy in the UK, that you do not trust. And it's completely illiberal and completely mm. censorious. So uh, this is a really quite big and, and worrying move in relation to internet freedom. But also on a tactical level, because I mean, we talk a lot about spiked about the principles of free speech that are very important. We say no ifs, no buts, and that's key. But on a tactical level, you can see that this kind of censorious outlook is not working. Take someone like Tommy Robinson, Mm. who everyone is freaking out about at the moment, left, right and centre. He is a product of censorship because he is someone who capitalises on the basis of being shut down. His followers have a conspiracy theory about him being, you know, the kind of the sayer of the unsayable. When you listen to the guy, he's got nothing interesting to say. But the censorship has given him a glamour that he didn't already have. So on a tactical level, this isn't yeah. going to work. Mm. In fact, it might make things worse. That's absolutely true. I mean, he's he's now, you know, he's not on Facebook. He's not on Twitter, not on PayPal. Um, he, YouTube have said they're going to restrict access to his videos. And yet he is the highest earning activist in, in Britain. So mm. Making more money than ever, it seems like. And I think the tactical point is actually quite important as well for the, for the left to consider. Because there's so many left-wingers who are obviously cheering this ban. They really need to be careful what they wish for. Because one thing that you're seeing, and I don't just mean this on the on the radical right or whatever, but there is this kind of discussion, particularly amongst conservative circles, which is basically always trying to make this point of like saying, well, if you're going to censor the far left, if you're going to censor the far right, you should censor the far left. Making this argument, which I believe to be deeply wrong and historically illiterate, that you can basically put the far right and the far left on some kind of moral equivalence. Mm-hmm. But you could definitely see things moving in that direction that the kind of horseshoe theory dictates censorship mm. in all kinds of other examples. I mean, we saw this in 2018 when PayPal froze the account of Tommy Robinson and the Proud Boys. People I think you can't really call fascist, but are definitely on the kind of radical right. Um, part of politics but it also within days of that suspended a number of additional anti-fascist accounts so the anti-fascist network atlanta antifa antifa sacramento according to buzzfeed paypal have also quietly deleted loads of antifa groups over 2017 and 2018 so there are a lot of people running around online these days saying they're literally a communist and all this kind of Mm. thing i mean at what point do they start to feel this as well and i think if nothing else it's you know whilst we would oppose this kind of censorship on a principle basis there's something so tactically idiotic about the way in which these people are going on especially the ones who like to think at least that they're genuinely radical and threatening the status quo if that's true why would these billionaire oligarchs not come after you at some point it's utterly ridiculous
And in terms of um, Facebook itself calling for government regulations, obviously, obviously this is a dark day for, you know, it's a very dark thing for freedom of speech and internet freedom. But you can see from their point of view how actually calling for state regulation yeah. is is tactically business-wise quite shrewd because a lot of this pressure that is coming on them to to sort of self-regulate costs a lot of money, costs them a lot of money and has done them a lot of PR damage. So if they can kind of outsource that to... You know, if they can outsource blame or whatever for what we post to the government, I mean, it's no skin off their back that free speech is under threat. Well, the other thing is just like, how are they supposed to go about kind of doing all of this kind of censorship? Now, this new announcement this week on kind of white nationalism is is one new part of it. But this is Facebook have been filtering posts and censoring stuff for a while. And the way in which they do it is incredibly cack handed. You know, I mean, this is something that Nick Gillespie wrote about in Reason at the end of last year. So Facebook has what, like, just over 2 billion monthly active users, right? And it's trying to effectively filter all of this, the supposedly objectionable content. And of course, it's not being able to do that in anything like a kind of reasoned way, even if there is such a way of doing that. The New York Times at the end of last year actually looked into how they're monitoring and policing these users. They have about 7,500 moderators around the world who are making these decisions. They're effectively, many of them are making decisions on... um, posts that are not even in their native language they're relying mm. on google translate many of them were <laughs> recruited through call centers and things like this mm. you know you're talking about r- arbitrary rules which have been set by lawyers within facebook which are quite difficult to apply in a yes or no fashion anyway being applied by people who are looking at hundreds of posts a day you know the fact that every so often you know we people sometimes get in contact and spikes and say that their post about xyz has been removed it's it's not it's unsurprising given how you know kind of if nothing else, kind of cat-handed a lot of this censorship will be. And it's a particular danger for other people around the world who are trying to use social media to actually get their voices out in quite repressive circumstances. It's going to really burn them as well, I'm sure. And what no one wants to admit is that this is subjective and it's overtly political. So one person's disgusting, terrible post, for example, when I post about abortion, Mm. there are people who call me a murderer and say this is the most disgusting thing. I'm sure they really believe it. Uh, Does that mean my post gets taken down because it's subjectively considered murderous by some people any kind of political question and especially the the if you look into and um, what he's written and Zuckerberg has written in the Washington Post his section on election integrity is really worrying because it's talking about essentially f- enforcing transparency on funding for elections deciding what is and isn't a political post deciding what is and isn't a fundraising post mm-hmm. I mean what what happens to magazines like Spiked? Who write? Mm-hmm. We are a political magazine. Where who decides what's right and wrong for us to write about? So the whole thing is pretty bad. And I think we need to make a real defence for free speech online with no ifs and no buts. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are. Why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. Former vice president and potential frontrunner for the Democratic presidential nomination, Joe Biden, has been accused of inappropriate touching by a number of women. Women have come forward with allegations of nuzzling, kisses on the back of the head and him placing his hands on thighs for a little bit too long. Biden denies he has ever acted inappropriately, but has offered countless handshakes, hugs and expressions of affection. 
Ella, has the lovable Uncle Joe become the creepy Uncle Joe? And does this matter? (laughs) I've got two reactions to this. So the first one is obviously to say that this is nuts. It's ridiculous. I mean, if you look at the kind of allegations, you shouldn't even call them allegations Hmm. (laughs) that have been made. For example, Amy Lapos, who in 2009 said that uh, Joe Biden had grabbed her by the head and rubbed noses. And she says, it wasn't even sexual, but he did grab me by the head. I mean, it's so blasé, these kind of allegations. Um, similarly, Lucy Flores, who in 2014 said that Joe Biden, before a rally, planted a big, slow kiss on the back of her head in which she initially thought he was smelling her hair. And it's just very clear to anyone with any common sense that Joe Biden is a guy of a certain age. He's 76. He's mm. pretty touchy-feely quite clearly not in a sexual way, just in a sort of awkward granddad way. And I mean, for you to, anyone to take offense to that is a bit uh, lame, to put it frankly. The other reaction that I have is, ha, you reap what you sow, Joe Biden, because he is at the forefront of the panic about sexual harassment in America. He helped set up It's On Us, which is a kind of online mm. campaign in which signs people up to get trained on campus, university students, to get trained in how not to sexually harass people. He (laughs) made a speech to frat boys that said, drunk sex is rape, is rape, is rape. He's, he is at the forefront of panicking about sexual harassment. So if you do that and you make those kind of, uh, broad statements about how terrible sexual harassment is how widespread it is then i'm sorry but it's going to come back and bite you in the backside Mm. when someone claims that you kiss them on the back of the head inappropriately tom well the other thing i thought was interesting about this was as soon as this story kind of came out because there's been these pictures of of joe biden kind of awkwardly holding (laughs) kissing and nuzzling people kind of around for a while it was a bit of just just sort of something that was a bit of a silly internet joke for a long time so of course as soon as these allegations started to surface you know the right-wing trolls kicked into gear they started sharing all of these pictures and what was interesting was a couple of people kind of got caught in the crossfire so the wife of the former defense secretary ash carter has had to dismiss claims that she was one of the kind of victims Mm. of joe biden because there's this picture of him with his hands on her shoulders kind of seeming to whisper in her ear as her husband's being sworn in she had to write a post for medium saying look i'm not a victim he was a friend comforting me in what was a quite stressful moment Mm. similarly there was another um, situation with Delaware Senator Chris Coons had to make clear that Joe Biden wasn't being creepy towards his 13 year old girl there's a picture of him kind of you know awkwardly kind of um, holding and kissing her at a 2015 event and he had to make, he was like look they've known Joe all their lives that was again yeah. he was slightly nervous on a public stage and he was comforting her and so one of the you know ironies of this is that Me Too is supposedly supposed to be about women speaking their truth and this is a point that one of these people made um, and yet when it's politically convenient you know they will just use take certain and issues out of context without anyone's consent and just kind of use them as cannon fodder, frankly. On the BBC, um, Nick Bryant points out that actually, you know, Joe Biden comes from an age where men were touchy-feely, not just with women, but with other men. Yeah. You know, the firm handshake, yeah. people getting right up in each other's personal space. He says that, you know, if you look at pictures from those kind of times, you could almost mistake them for a mating ritual. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> But it's sad, isn't it, that you've lost that kind of... I think this is one of the tragedies of the Me Too movement is that you lose any of the innocence of human interaction yeah. in terms of people being able to touch each other. In like Whether it be hug, whether it be arms rubbing if you're on the tube, any of these things has now suddenly become that dreaded word problematic because everything is interpreted as an offence, as an abusive measure, as someone encroaching on your public space. And for women especially, this is really damaging because what it's saying is that every 
older man or even every man is a threat mm. and if he does something like if he if you're feeling nervous and someone puts their hand on your back on your arm around your shoulders you're meant to interpret that as an affront rather than as something nice that even a stranger might do to you i think for women's freedom that's a terrible terrible thing because it makes us out to be these scared children all the time. And on the subject of women's freedom, I think it's really interesting as well that so much focus has come on Joe Biden just for these these pictures and these allegations of, of nuzzling, despite the fact his record on things like women's rights and abortion is incredibly checkered. You know, this is something Rebecca Traster wrote about in New York Magazine recently, someone who I usually disagree with entirely, but made some important points. You know, a young Joe Biden thought Roe v. Wade went too far. He's on record as saying a woman, he doesn't think a woman has the sole right to say what should happen to her body he's voted for various different kind of restrictions on abortion over the years and whilst he has kind of now come out as kind of pro-choice it's not clearly a kind Mm. of full conversion by any stretch of the imagination so often when you kind of reduce questions like women's liberation to a question of kind of manners as me too often does the more you actually miss the real substance of of what people are standing for and what actually threat they might potentially pose in office or elsewhere You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.